Yes. Alright. Alright. I've been trying to um, review enough to make sure that we're able to do that because I know I'm giving you a lot. Uh, um, and uh, that's the idea. But I, I, I hope indeed that the why it matters part is really what's, it's what's resonating the most. Alright, let's look at the topic of Armageddon. Um, Alright. Uh, Armageddon. Revelation 16. Now note verses 14 and 16 are quoted, but I'm going to show you verse 15 in a few minutes. Okay? So Revelation 16, verse 14. It says, For they are the spirits of demons, performing signs, which go out to the kings of the whole world, that would be the kings of the present age, to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Alright, that's verse 14. Now verse 16. And they gather them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. Now, I, I, I know it's a little small, but I think you guys can see it because you have it on, on, uh, on your screens as well. I put to, uh, together the ESV, the New American Standard, the Net Bible, the NIV, the New Living Translation, and the NRSV. So we can see the translation. And note the translation of the last word. In the ESV, it's Armageddon with an A. In the New American Standard, it's Har-mageddon. All right. Uh, the Net Bible says Armageddon. The NIV says Armageddon. The New Living Translation says Armageddon, and the New Revised Standard says Har-mageddon. So the New American, and by the way, my slides have all been in the New American Standard. Okay. So the New American Standard says Har-mageddon, and so does the NRS. Har-mageddon. The other ones go with Armageddon. All right. I can assure you the Greek manuscripts are Har-mageddon. Okay. I can assure you of that. What happened is this. Har-mageddon, let me see what the next slide says. All right, no, it's, all right. Har with an H, all right? And, and by the way, and, and, and Dr. Go knows this, but, but uh, Hebrew, uh, Greek has no H. So it's a breathing mark. It's a, it's a little, it looks like a quotation mark. If the quotation mark hooks to the left, okay, it's, it, it, it doesn't make any sound at all, okay? If it hooks to the right, you put a ha, ha, an H sound in front of it. Right. By the way, you ever notice British people can't don't say H's? My uncle Ari would tell you that, right? All right. Uh, have a happy birthday, to, right? They don't say the H. It, it's, it's not really a letter, it's a breathing. Okay. All right. When you put the H sound in front of it, and the Greek man, the best manuscripts have this H sound in front of it. It says Harmageddon, which means the Mount of Megiddo. Problem. Megiddo is not a mountain. It's a, it's a city in the valley. So you have scribes who are copying this now, uh, later on going, uh, this has to be wrong. Somebody put the little breathing mark in the wrong direction. It goes this way, not, it goes left, not right. And as soon as it goes left, take the H off and it becomes Armageddon. Arma means battle of Megiddo. And it seems to be describing a battle of Megiddo. And so you have the manuscript testimony saying it's the Battle of Megiddo, but that's all the latter, later manuscript t testimony. The best early ones, and Revelation has two or three manuscripts that are really, really good. All right? It's really just two or three. And the rest of them kind of all kind of derive from that. All right? The best early ones say Har Megiddo, Mount of Megiddo, which raises the question of what are you talking about because there's no mountain. And Armageddon, Battle of Megiddo, is actually not the best reading. All right? Now, you can see the ESV, the NIV, and those uh, translations or whatever are kind of going with what's been out there for a long time now. So it raises this question. Okay. Now let's look at, well, what does this mean? And, and how do we know what this means? All right. Now we have an advantage. Well, what's this Battle of Megiddo that we're talking about? Uh, and here's the way I would put it. Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9. Uh, I don't have, do I have this on your outline? Let's see. Yeah. 
No, I, I know I have a line in my notes that that's in red. And if, I, if it's in red, it means it's on your note. It's on the uh, slides, and it's not on the slides. All right. So let's read Re- Revelation 20 verses 7 through 9, and it's actually going to be the exact same language as Revelation 16. It says, "When a thousand years are over or completed, Satan will be released from his prison, and will come out to deceive the nations which are are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. That's Ezekiel, by the way, 37, right? to gather them together for the war." Right? That's the exact same phrase used in Revelation 16. Gather them together for the war. Now look at the description of the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore, which is a reference to Genesis, by the way, isn't it, right? The sand of the seashore. All right. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Okay. Who is the war? Who's fighting the war against who in this passage? Satan is gathering. Who's he gathering? The nations. He's going out to deceive the nations and he's going to gather them together for the war. Who do they go fight the war against? He surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Remember, we already discussed, uh, it might not be on one of the podcasts, but we discussed people, city, temple are all the same. The holy city is us. And the saints are us. Okay? The war in Revelation 20 is Satan fighting against God's people. Okay? That, one, that one's easy. Now, I would, I'm going to argue that it's the same language in chapter 16, which means it's the same thing going on there. Okay? Um, all right, uh, and actually, if you have your Bibles, and I don't have the slide for this one, but open them up to Revelation chapter 19. It's almost the same language, but not exactly. Revelation 19, verse 19. Okay? It's a similar, but not, exact, not identical phrase. Revelation 19, 19. And it says, I saw the beast coming, uh, and the kings of the earth, and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. The one sitting on the horse is Christ. So Revelation 19, 19 now. The beast and the armies of the earth are making war against Jesus and Jesus' army. So that parallels chapter 20 because Satan goes out and gets the nations of the world. Right? In chapter 19, it's the beast. In chapter 20, it's, a, it's Satan. No big deal. Because remember, Satan empowers... The, oh, you might not remember. In Revelation 13, Satan empowers the beast. Okay. So Satan and his armies are battling Christ and his armies or battling God's people. Right? By the way, it's kind of stupid to fight against God, but I'll take it out on God's people. Satan doesn't fight God. He fights God's people. Okay? Now, let's go to chapter 13. I have a slide for this one. Revelation 13. Or, or, oh, here's the line I have. This is the line I have in my notes. The war throughout Revelation is that which Satan has always waged and still does against the people of God. Without question. In the book of Revelation, the war is always, every single instance of war in the book of Revelation is Satan waging war against God's people. Okay? Here's another example. Revelation 13, verses 6 and 7. He opened his mouth and blasphemies against God. This is the beast. He opens his mouth to blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, note the the temple language, that is, those who dwell in heaven, and it was given to him to make war with the saints and overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was, was given to him. 
the beast wages war against God's people. Okay? We can go chapter 12, verse 17. This is the last verse of chapter 17, of chapter 12. The dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That seems like a pretty good description for us. I hope it's us, right? I mean, ideally it's us. Satan is waging war against God's people. Remember I said earlier, what's the best way to to win a war? To not let your enemy know you're fighting them. Okay, so here's, here's, here's what I think is incredible now. All right? and we'll kind of go back up uh, arm again a little bit more. And that's this. We have this conception that the Antichrist is some political figure out there. When I was a kid, it was Gorbachev. You ever heard of Gorbachev? He was the leader of... of and he had a birthmark on his head. It was Gorbachev, right? Oh, oh, it's Hitler. It's this guy. It's that guy. We make it these... Poli- all right. Folks, the Antichrist means by definition he's proclaiming himself to be Jesus. Alright? Watch out for many false prophets and false Christs who will appear among you. They're not going to be out there. They're going to be in here. Satan ain't trying to deceive the world to believe that he's... They're already deceived about Jesus' part. He's trying to deceive us. So he's going to go get them and keep them under deception so that he can go attack us. What he doesn't realize, because he made this mistake on the cross, is that the death of God's people is how the nations are converted. But we sit back going, well, I don't, there haven't been enough wars yet. I don't think Jesus is coming back for a few more weeks. I, I, I literally know, I mean, I was like this when I was young. We would get excited when we see about catastrophes and calamities and, vo- and earthquakes and pestilence. And, and I feel bad for those people, but this means Jesus might be coming back now. How can God's people really be excited when people are dying and starving? And we're supposed to be peacemakers and there's war going on. Yes, they're about ready to invade the Middle East because that's where Armageddon takes place. That's the exact opposite of what God's people should be doing. Right? I wrote, a, I wrote a post on Facebook. I don't think it went over very well, but I don't, when I write posts a lot of times, I'll make, I'll make statements and I just won't look at the comments. Mm-hmm. Right? I have enough respect because you know, who I am as a teacher, whatever. Right? people listen to me and then other people who don't like it, don't. don't, don't, don't right? When Osama bin Laden died, right? Now, and now I, I live for 40 years in the Bay Area. Okay? So one of those planes was heading to San Francisco. So people we know in our churches died on, on one of those, the, the plane that, that, that crashed out in Pennsylvania. All right? So, horrific tragedy. No, no, right. When Osama bin Laden was killed, in a sense, there was justice. Right? All right. And so, in that sense, we can, we can kind of take encouragement that justice has been served. Okay? Because there was justice. But I know people that were excited that bin Laden died. So I quoted, I believe it was Ezekiel, and I said, God does not delight in the death of anyone. Quote, unquote. You see, the problem is this. Osama bin Laden's death means he can never be redeemed now. It might be justice. And I'm not denying that justice needs to be served and whether you believe in the death penalty and all that, that's fine. I'm just simply saying, but we don't rejoice. We grieve. We, we take comfort that justice has been served, but we grieve because a person's been lost forever from the kingdom. Same thing with war. We, why... I grew up excited that what was happening because it was a sign of the imminent return of Jesus. And then we realized, actually, that's how Satan and the kingdom of this world works. 
God's kingdom works by dying. And by, okay. So you see why I think this eschatology and this eschatological framework is so important to get our hands around? Hey, this, there's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of the world. And the kingdom of the world is a war against the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God wins by dying and rising again, just like Jesus died and rose again. And we win by love and humility. And by the way, when we were excited, when Osama bin Laden died, what did the Muslim world think? How many Muslims did we lose our witness to? Because we rejoiced when one of their own was killed. See what happens? We're losing our witness. And so I think it's actually really, really dangerous. All right, so the point then is, is Armageddon is a battle that the devil wages against God's people. Okay, so remember that verse that we skipped over, Revelation 16, verse 15? All right, oh, so, here, so why does it matter? All right, the people of God must be prepared for this war. We must be prepared for this war. All right, what does that mean? That means the devil's trying to deceive us. He's trying to bring, he's, he's trying to bring disunity into the church, by the way. Right? What's one of the key things that, God t- that Jesus tells the church? Be unified. Right? Because what, l- let me step back. We are the image bearers of God and God is one. Unity in the church is not something to like, well, you know, sorry, but there's like 35,000 denominations. Oops. No, it's not an oops, folks. God is one. And we're not, when we're not one, we're not imitating our Father. We're not Im- imitating God. All right. So we must be prepared for that word. Now look at Revelation 16, verse 15. This is in the parentheses there. All right. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so they won't walk about naked and men see a shame. In the middle of describing the battle of Armageddon, there's a, and notice it's in parentheses in the, NIV, in, in the New American Standard, in most translations it's in parentheses, and, and because it is, it's parenthetical. Right? These are the spirits of demons going out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he won't walk about naked and men see a shame. In chapter 19, we're told that the white clothes of God's people represent their righteous deeds. Keeping our clothes on means what? Being prepared. Being prepared means what? Being a witness. Remember the church in the book of Revelation are seven lampstands. What does it mean to be prepared? It means to be a light. Okay? Satan is waging war against us, we're told in verses, verse 14. So be ready. What does be ready mean? Be faithful. Right? Verse 16. They gather them together the place that in Hebrew is called, or is called Armageddon. Okay. Now, or Har-Mageddon. Now, why the Mount of Megiddo? Because they're fighting against God's people, and God's people are the temple. And where are temples located? Mountains. Right? And we saw that in chapter 20. I think I can go back. It says, they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Revelation 20, verses 7 through 9. Okay. Oops. Wrong button. All right. So, it's, it's the Mount of Megiddo because it's, it's God's people as a temple. Okay. Um, and we actually saw that um, Revelation 13. It was, he opened his mouth to blaspheme God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle. That's why it's called the Mount of Megiddo. All right, now, why Megiddo? Because that's where all the great battles in the Old Testament took place. Okay, and, and we don't have time to kind of, kind of go through the, detail, uh, the, de- the details of that. But Megiddo is this great battleground, all right, which takes place in the Old Testament, whether it's the Assyrians coming in, 
all right, or the northern tribes against the southern tribes. It's Megiddo, okay? Now, by the way, if you go to Megiddo today, there's a big mound, all right? And they'll go up there and they'll, they'll stand up at the top of the mountain and they'll go, see, this is the battle of the Mount of Megiddo where the end times battle is going to take place, okay? It's not, a, it's not describing the, a literal battle there because the battle is Satan's war against us, right? So it's not going to happen in the plain of Israel, number one. Number two, Megiddo today is not a mountain, it's a tell, a tell is an archaeological artifact. What happens is that when a city gets destroyed, the next inhabitants build up on top of it. And the next inhabitants build up on top of that one that got destroyed. And that gets destroyed. And, the next, and by the time they're done, there's a tell. It's a little mound. And archaeologists know wherever they see these mounds, there's cities under there. And there might be several generations of, or, or several you know, thousands of years or hundreds of years of these, of these cities. So the original city down at the bottom was in the valley. But over time, it got built up on, it's, it's, it's on a tell right on the side of, of, uh, uh, of the, the Jezreel Valley. Okay, now let's take some questions and comments and thoughts and some other ideas. I asked some questions at the very beginning. We can go back and answer those briefly as well. I think I'll have a few more minutes, right, David? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, all right. So, um, my, the questions I asked at the very, very, very beginning, I said, um, why, um, uh, let's see, uh, why do we worship on Sunday when the Old Testament says the Sabbath is Saturday? All right? uh, and the answer is because the Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus. Right? The Sabbath was pointing us to Jesus. Right? And the best way to, and, and so we are now in the Sabbath rest of Jesus. It's, it's begun all right, uh, there. And that's why Jesus redefines, uh, um, uh, 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 well, I'm thinking of Mark, um, 10, and it's not coming to me very well. Uh, but he describes the Sabbath in terms of, I'd have to look it up. He describes the Sabbath in terms of um, Genesis. Uh, remember, um, uh, it's not coming to me very well. Sorry. Mark 10. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, uh, Moses, you know, is it okay to divorce, uh, for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? Uh, and he says, from the beginning he created them, male and female, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. What God has brought together, let no man separate. Um, and he goes on, uh, sorry, that's not the Sabbath, I'm sorry. Uh, the, the, the context is, he's describing marriage in the terms of the fulfillment of Genesis. And so the idea of fulfillment is happening in Jesus. So, sorry, I'm confusing two things there. All right. The point of that is, why do we worship on Sunday when the ultimate says the Sabbath is Saturday? Because it's fulfilled in Jesus. All right. The Sabbath is the seventh day of creation. Uh, and there's actually a really neat story I can tell you on that in just a second. Why don't we celebrate the Passover and the various Old Testament feasts? And the answer is, why don't we celebrate the Passover and the various Old Testament feasts? Would it be just along the same way? Exactly. Yeah. Fulfilled in Jesus. He's, right? But Your fathers ate man in the wilderness? Unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you, can't, you have no life in yourself. But didn't they, the disciples in Acts and the new converts, didn't they um, celebrate the, um, the different feasts? As well, as well, so they continue for a short while, in a sense. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, I know it's uh, they, they continue going to the temple and, and doing those things. No indication that they continue celebrating the feasts, however. Right? It seems that from the very beginning, the Sabbath has been moved to Sunday. Okay. So Acts twenty verse seven on the first day of the week. They, they are, so they, they're they're I know it's, remember they're trying to be a witness to the Jews, right? And so while they're in the Jewish context, they're kind of keeping their feet in both worlds at the same time. But uh, there's no indication that they're celebrating this, the, the festivals uh, other than uh, um, 
um, kind of associating with the people, uh, so to speak. All right. Okay. Uh, why don't we sacrifice animals and attend the temple in Jerusalem? Fulfilled in Jesus. All right. So the point of that is we kind of know those. You knew those before, I, before you came in today. You, you probably knew, hey, Passover fulfilled in Jesus, manna fulfilled in Jesus, sacrifices fulfilled in Jesus, right? We don't go to the temple in, in Jerusalem because of Jesus. But the point of that is that means the eschaton's already begun. These are all eschatological. They're all pointing to the ultimate fulfillment. And so, we, yet we hold to this, oh, eschatology refers to the future only and not the present also, and yet our very practices of church and, and, and those things as well. All right, let me give you a quick, a quick illustration, and I'll, I'll do this quickly. All right, the Gospel of John clearly has this Genesis language. In the beginning, right, the Gospel of John begins with, right? Um, clearly has this Genesis understanding. He wants to associate you with Genesis, but it's a new creation. All right? In John chapter 1 and John chapter 2, there appear to be seven days. This is the first day, and then the next day, and then the next day. And, and he seems to be counting the days. All right? All right? And so in John chapter 1 and John chapter 2, and it seems as though there appears to be a week or seven days. And on that seventh day is the wedding in Cana, where Jesus turns the water into wine. So it seems, it seems that there's this eschatological fulfillment going on. Now the key, of course, is that it's the coming of the Holy Spirit. Right? So John 2, he turns water into wine. And after that, he says, I'm the temple of God. Note water and temple. Okay. John 3, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Oh, I can't go into my mother's womb a second time, Nicodemus says. Nicodemus, I'm talking about water and the Spirit. Note water again. Now remember, water is both creation and decreation. Water covered the earth, and so God had to separate the waters to make the dry ground to create. When God destroyed the creation, he did it with water. Right? So now the water of creation is now being turned into the new wine of Jesus. Is that why yeah. um, in Revelation it says like, there's no more sea? Okay, there you go. So there's no more sea in Revelation 21, because sea is almost always, it's not always, but often associated with chaos. Remember, the Israelites thought there were sea monsters, Leviathan and Behemoth, right, in, in the sea. Sea is chaos, and if you go too far off the sea, you might fall off the end of the world. And um, The lake of fire, the pigs rush into the, into the, into the sea after the demons, uh, they're filled with the demons, because they say, hey, Jesus, don't send us into the abyss. Right? And we always say, oh, Jesus kind of answered the, the demons' request by not sending them into the abyss. No, he didn't. He sent them into the pigs, and the pigs ran into the abyss, because the sea is an abyss. Okay? Now, that abyss is also associated with fire, okay? so hence the lake of fire in the book of Revelation. So there's no longer any sea means there's no longer any chaos. Right? There's, there's no more decreation. This is, this is the eternal creation. Exactly. All right, chapter 4 of the Gospel of John, he meets a woman in the well and says, you should have asked me. If you knew who I was, you would have asked me and I would have given you living water and you would never thirst again. Okay? In John 7, now fast-forwarding ahead, all right, it says, but this he spoke of the Spirit, referring to the water, John 7, 37-39. This he spoke of the Spirit, whom he had not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay. Now, fast forward, John 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Why? Because water is also purifying. And the disciples are about to become a temple. And you can't enter the temple unless you've been purified. So he washes the disciples' feet, preparing them for temple entrance. Right? All right. Now, I, I, I'm, I, can I show them? I'm, I'm going to do one more thing. All right. In the book of Ezekiel, 
40, I want to f- finish the thought in John in just a second. In the, in the book of Ezekiel, chapters 40 through 48, describe this end times temple slash city slash people. Okay, so open your Bibles to Ezekiel 47. And then obviously I don't have slides for these. Okay, Ezekiel 47. Okay, it's, uh, Ezekiel's describing a temple that is a city that is a people. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, right? Okay. Okay, I probably should get my glasses out, but I'll see if I can do it without them. All right, now, chapter 47, so it's a temple, city, people. Chapter 47, verse 1. Ezekiel says, he brought me to the front door of the house. The house is the temple. Okay. Front door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from out of the house toward the east, for the house faced east. Okay, remember... All temples in the Old Testament face east. By the way, all the early Christian churches faced east as well. Okay. So the temple is facing east, and water is coming out of the temple from the east. Okay. Now, the water was flowing down from the altar, from, un- from underneath, from the right side of the house, from the south of the altar. And he brought me out by way of the north gate, and he led me around to the outside to the outer gate by way of the, uh, of the gate that faces east. And behold, Water was trickling from the south side. So you get a little trickle of water coming from the temple, from the throne, okay, out of the temple. Verse 3, when the man went out toward the, rest, uh, uh, toward the east with a line in his hand, and a line is a measuring rod, and a measuring rod means God's, it's whatever is being measured is protected by God. Okay? That's what a measuring line is. It's something a prophet uses to say, protected by God. All right. And he measured a thousand cubits, all right, which is like 1,500 feet. Okay, um, and he led me through the water, water reaching the ankles, and he measured verse four. And he measured a thousand, and he led me through water, water, water reaching the knees, and he measured a thousand, and he led me through the water, water reaching the loins. Notice the water is leaving the temple and it's getting deeper. Okay, now there's a problem. That's not possible, folks. Rivers can only get deeper if water's being added to the river. You need more tributaries. So you have a water coming from the temple, but it's getting deeper and deeper and deeper as it leaves the temple. And it's going to the east. Now, if you know what's east of, uh, of the city of Jerusalem is the Mount of Olives. So it goes down the Kidron Valley, up on the Mount of Olives. What, now, the Mount of Olives is actually higher than the, Mount of, than, than the Temple Mount. Okay? When you go east of the Mount of Olives, you go downhill. The Mount of Olives is 3,000 feet in elevation. When you go east of the Mount of Olives, you go downhill to the Dead Sea, 1,800 feet below sea level, the lowest place on earth. You drop 4,800 feet. So from the Mount of Olives, it's going straight to the, sea, to the Dead Sea. Any of you ever been in the Dead Sea? You ever been, David? No. All right. the, the Dead Sea is dead. I mean, there is not a living thing in it. It has 37% salt content. So the Salt River has 6% salt content. That tells you how much salt and minerals are on the Dead Sea. When you go in the Dead Sea, you cannot sink. It's not possible. Okay? You float because there's so much stuff in there. In fact, if you, you, you go in with your sandals, because sometimes, depending on where you're, cross, you're getting in, the sand's really, really hot. Or whatever, you are, and it's hard to keep your feet underneath you. You can't stand upright. You, your feet just go up like this. Okay? It's, it, it, there's nothing alive in the Dead Sea. Okay, so that, that's the imagery. So notice the imagery of the water getting deeper. All right. Uh, verse 5, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not ford, for the water had risen enough water to, uh, to swim in, a river that could not be forded. All right. And he keeps describing these waters, and it says, verse 8, the waters go out toward the eastern region, toward the Arabah. Now, Arabah is just a Hebrew word that means desert. It's going out to the Dead Sea. All right. And they go out toward the sea. Now, it's the Dead Sea, not the Mediterranean Sea, because it's going to the east. 
Okay? Um, and the waters of the sea become fresh. And now, verse 9. And it will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And there'll be many fish, for these waters go there, and the other waters become fresh. So everything will live where the, where the river goes. It'll come about the fishermen will stand beside it from En Gedi. These are places on the Dead Sea. En Gedi to Englein. Right? Their fish will be according to their net, uh, um, uh, spreading their nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea. That's the Mediterranean. Very many. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh, for they'll be left for salt. And by the river on its bank, on either side of the, of the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, and their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month, because their water flows from the sanctuary, and their fruit will become food, and their leaves for healing. That reminds us of the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life. But note, that's quoted in Revelation 22. Revelation 22 I saw the river, the water of life, coming from the throne of God. And on the other side of the river was a tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, and yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That's Revelation 22, verses 1 through 3. Okay. So Ezekiel's temple is ultimately fulfilled in the New Jerusalem. But it's this imagery of water that Jesus is talking about. Woman, you should have asked me, and I would have given you living water, and you'll never thirst again. Sir, the well is deep. Where are you going to get this water? Now, our father said that we're supposed to worship on this mountain, but you Jews say it's in Jerusalem. It's neither in Jerusalem nor on this mountain but our, because they'll worship in spirit and in truth. John seven thirty seven. But this he spoke of the spirit. Okay. Now you go to 13. He washed the disciples' feet. It's water imagery. Okay. Then you go to John um, uh, 18. John 18, Jesus is on trial before Pilate. And on, in John 19, he's crucified. Pilate has Jesus beaten and bloody because he doesn't want to have Jesus killed. Right? He doesn't want to do this. I, I find no guilt in this man. Crucify, crucify. He beats him up. He has Jesus brought out and he says, Ecce homo. You ever heard that Latin phrase? It means, behold the man. Jesus is the man, isn't he? He's the epitome of a human being. He is the human being who is bearing God's image. To bear God's image is to be human. And that's exactly what Jesus did. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, John 14, verse 9. All right. But that's on Friday, the sixth day of the week. Jesus is then crucified, and on the cross, on John 19, he says, It is finished! at the end of Friday, the sixth day of the week. On the seventh day of the week, which is Saturday, he's in the tomb. If you open your Bibles to John 20, verse 1, you're going to notice something strange. Okay? And I promise I'm going to finish, David. I hope you're being patient with me, right? All right, good. Thank you, sir. Here we go. All right. John 20, verse 1 says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other, and they go to the tomb. Now, look at verse 19. When therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week. John wants us to know that it's the first day of the week. Because he tells us twice. And they don't do that. Ancient authors don't repeat. They are an oral culture and they're really good at hearing. 
When they heard in verse 1 that it was the first day of the week, John does not need to repeat it in verse 19. Repetition is an author's way of saying, pay attention. I want you to understand something. Now, notice that on that first day of the week, the women go to the tomb. And verse 11 says, Mary was standing outside the tomb and she was weeping. And so she wept. She wept. She stooped and looked inside the tomb. Verse 12. There were two angels in white sitting and behold, uh, um, at, at the, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to him, Woman, why are you weeping? But uh, She said, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have laid him. When she said this, she turned around, and behold, Jesus was standing there. And she didn't know it was Jesus. And she said, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. Adam was a gardener in Genesis. Adam was made on the sixth day of the week. Behold the man. At the end of the sixth day, at the end of the six days, God says, it is finished. And God rested from all of his creation. On the seventh day, God rests. It's now the first day of the new creation. That's why John's repeating it twice, saying it's the first day of the week. Because look what happens in verse 19. When therefore it was evening on that day of the first day of the week, and the doors were shut where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and he said, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord and Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father sent me, so I send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them. The word breathed on them is the exact same word used in the Greek version of Genesis 2, verse 7. God breathed on Adam, on Adam and he became a living being. The word breath is the same word as spirit, right? Breath, wind, and spirit. In Greek and Hebrew, it's the same word. What's, God, what's Jesus doing? He's making them new creations. Receive the Holy Spirit. If any man is in Christ, behold, he is a new creation. So why does it matter our eschatology? Because I think it matters to understand that the new creation has begun. In the new creation, Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We still live in, the world, in this world, of course. We have this overlapping dual kingdoms existing at the same time, right? This already not yet. In the kingdoms of this world, it's power and, and force and military and stepping on the other guy and lying and cheating and doing whatever you can to get ahead. And the kingdom of God is by love and humility and sacrifice and surrender. Our mission is to make God known, which Jesus has begun the presence of God amongst us and the Holy Spirit continues that presence of God amongst us, ultimately climaxing in the New Jerusalem. In the meantime, if, uh, we, we, we live in a kingdom of tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance, as John says in Revelation 1, verse 9. We must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. But it's through our tribulations that Jesus is made known to the nations and in doing so, his coming back is sooner. Okay? I think it's significant. All right, any questions, thoughts, comments? Wow. Okay. All right, it's a lot to chew on. So here's the deal. I've recorded all this and I'm going to end this now. All right. Um,